Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Dr. Ewan Graham, the Executive Director of La Trobe Asia. Philip Bowering is a long-term journalist and has been based in Asia for 39 years, writing on regional financial and political issues. For many of those years, as a columnist for the South China Morning Post and editor of the Far Eastern Economic Review. He's the author of a new book, Empire of the Winds, The Global Role of Asia's Great Archipelago, published in 2019 by Taurus, which provides a history of the world's largest and most important archipelago and its adjacent coasts. In this book, he introduces the concept of Nusantaria, centered on maritime Southeast Asia and the Malay Archipelago, for centuries a vital cultural and trading hub, and primarily the domain of the Austronesian-speaking peoples and their seafaring traditions. The surrounding waters have always been uniquely important as a corridor connecting East Asia to India, the Middle East, Europe and Africa. Thank you for joining me, Philip. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, very kind of you to invite me and very kind of you to say nice words about the book. It strikes me that um, there is a trend at the moment towards reimagining geography. Uh, a lot of it is future-oriented. We have the concept of the Indo-Pacific. What I liked about your approach, A, that it's historical, but also that you're focused on a part of Asia that frankly doesn't get enough attention centred on the Malay archipelago. What were your motivations in writing? Well, I suppose I started off with the realization of my own ignorance after you know, having been a journalist in this region for more than 40 years. I knew a lot about current events. I knew quite a lot about the history of the last 70 years, a fair bit about the last 150 years, but almost nothing about uh, most of the region before that time. And then I discovered that uh, actually most people I talked to, I mean, that's, you know, educated people, uh, was similarly ignorant. So I started doing some broader reading, and then I realized something else, that uh, you know, people talked about Southeast Asia. It's a very recent concept. So I thought, well, one needs to sort of deconstruct this a bit. And uh, I had earlier had, a, a, as a, somebody who's interested in the sea and sailing, some interest in the Austronesian expansion. You know, most of people talked about the Austronesian expansion in terms of their movement across the Pacific, you know, an amazing feat. But actually, of course, the biggest part of Austronesia was actually in Asia. It wasn't being identified as such. It was just sort of put together with, quote, Southeast Asia, which itself was a rather new concept. So it was a journey of discovery for myself. And in the process, I realized that, well, there isn't actually a book on this subject which covers it in very broad terms. You know, there's, there's many expert works on different periods, different parts, and so on and so forth. But uh, no broad brush look at this particular region and its own, you know, which has its own identity. Being a journalist, you know, I felt I could at least try and give a, a broad view in a way that sometimes, you know, people who are more specifically focused on areas and languages and so forth, um, uh, had not done. Although it is history, you do also focus right up to the, the present and, in fact, project forward to some future trends I'd like to come back to in, in a moment. But as a Southeast Asian Studies graduate, I, I'm also very susceptible to this view of history, which puts the maritime archipelago at, at its centre. You focus on the concept of, of Nusantara, which, of course, is, is well known, 
but put your own spin on that with the formulation of Nusantaria. And I just wondered if you could explain why you um, decided to do that. You see, Nusantara, it doesn't really deal with the issue completely. I mean, in many cases, people use Nusantara to describe the Indonesian archipelago and forget about the Philippines. National University of Singapore has a definition of the Malay world which excludes Visayas and Luzon, which you know, seems to me to be ridiculous. You know, clearly, I needed a, a word which was a bit bigger than Nusantara, and so this was a, a legitimate way of expanding Nusantara to something a little bit bigger and could also include you know, the fringes of, of this area, which were part of uh, Austronesian Asia, at least in the past, Taiwan and the uh, coastal Vietnam. So that's really you know, the origin of it. I mean, uh, there are other terms I suppose I could have used. That just seemed to me to be one which was based on a regional word, but expanded it a, a little bit. As you um, eloquently put in the book, there are some obvious things that, that link this macro region in terms of its archipelagic geography, maritime traditions, and Austronesian linguistic roots. But you further describe the dominant characteristics of Nusantaria as defined by common bonds, including flexible interpretations of religions within a fragmented political system. And I wondered, are those links strong enough to thread together countries, at least in their modern form, as diverse as Madagascar, Polynesian islands like Samoa, and Taiwan to the north? I mean, I, I, although I refer to Madagascar, I refer to Madagascar only in terms, really, of the settlement of Madagascar by people from Asian Austronesia. You know, I certainly don't take the story out uh, further east across the Pacific. You know, I do want to confine it to Asian Austronesia, otherwise it just gets too big as far as my purposes are concerned, and that's my focus. Now, whether these countries can come more together, given the fact that they have been divided up uh, according to colonial boundaries, that they have different religious uh, traditions and so on, it is very big and significant question, which I am not in a position to answer. And obviously, since 1945, there have been some efforts. Uh, there was particularly the idea for Mafilindo back in the 60s. Since when, of course, we've had perhaps another kind of division, you know, which you see perhaps in Malaysia and Indonesia as a greater focus on religious identity than uh, perhaps existed in the early days of independence. At the same time, I think that uh, people are beginning to think, well, is that the right direction to go? Say in Indonesia, for example, yes, there is the push for more Islamist uh, rules and so on in some ways, but there's also a growing uh, re-recognition of the importance of the maritime region. You get uh, President Duterte talking about the you know, possibility of changing the name of the country to, he uses the word, a Malay name. Mm. So there is a consciousness, and I think in the Philippines, you know, for 500 years, has been pointed in a, a Pacific direction, first of all by Spain and then by the U.S. You know, I think there is some some reasonable chance that the Malay, the language identity, the... Uh, cultural identity will reassert itself to some some degree. I'm not saying it will reassert itself in a political form. 
simply because you know this region has always had a problem hanging together politically simply because its geography is so divided by islands yeah. and, and so on but uh, cultural identity is something which you know, often can transcend political boundaries and indeed the influence of geography on that cultural mm. identity that is an, an intriguing question you pose towards the end of the book not to telegraph the ending but you throw it forward that uh, there is a a prospect of Nusantaria discovering its collective identity. But I want to turn the clock back now. And one of the clear impressions from the historical, early historical parts of the book is that Indic influences are, are much stronger than those from China until relatively late, which is perhaps surprising given China's importance to the trade itself, but in some senses very passive to the actual trading network all, all around it. There are signs of that Indic influence, as you've alluded to in southern Vietnam, the ruins that are there, of course, through Java. Bali itself is a a kind of living relic of that Hindu influence. Is India's influence on trade in Lucentaria in some senses evidentially disadvantaged in the archaeological sense because they were mainly trading in perishable goods, whereas coins and ceramics coming from China tend to have a, a longer shelf life? Well, yeah, I think that's very true. I mean, you, obviously, we, you know, ceramics is the one thing which survives uh, longer than anything else, longer than metals and so on. Because one of the themes of trade throughout 2,000 years was Indian cotton goods. Obviously, most of the cotton goods can survive. One can easily get a, a distorted picture simply from archaeological finds. But one of the things, of course, that you also see from this is the ships themselves were not Chinese. They were mostly from the region, some from India, Arab ships as well, Persian ships. And, I mean, there's good reason for that. You know, these countries, highly trade-dependent. Some Indian states were highly trade-dependent. Politically, of course, it's very divided, but uh, nonetheless, from the point of view of maritime trade, there's more in it for India than there is for China, really. And trade is certainly central to everything that you touch upon. But one of the things that I was surprised to learn about was it's not just trade, but talking about Tamil influences onto the Malay Peninsula that Kedah had itself actually been at one point conquered by Chola. Mm. And that's not something I think that's widely known even in Malaysia. No, although in fact, of course, there are remnants of evidence. One of the things in Malaysia, which I think is quite wrong, personally, that uh, there is so little emphasis on the pre-Islamic period. Srivijaya, which was this great trading enterprise based in Sumatra, was essentially Malay. Came in the Malacca Sultanate as a direct descendant of of Srivijaya. This is part of the history of the Malay people, very much so. And uh, how did Malay language become so important around the region? It wasn't because of Malacca. I mean, that was to some extent the case after 1500. But before that, it was the case. And it was because of Srivijaya. And yet, Srivijaya itself is a, a case of being disadvantaged in the terms of the archaeological record, because as you lay out, mm. most of the buildings were made of wood, yeah. and they couldn't even find where the site of Srivijaya was. Well, uh, that's uh, very true. But I suppose that's one of the problems of reconstructing history, is you know, what, what is it that survives? And you know, obviously, where people have got written records, 
you know more than than if you don't have written records. Uh, likewise, if you've got stone buildings, they survive, whereas wooden buildings don't. And, you know, more sophisticated methods of, of being developed. Maritime archaeology, which is still you know in its relative infancy. I think there's coming together sometimes of evidence from disparate sources. I mean, people are aware of just how much even the Romans knew. You know, Ptolemy's map had the Malay Peninsula and relatively accurate. And you know? coins turning up in well, Champa. Yes, coins in Bali. The fact that the first Romans to get to China went almost certainly went via Kedah. And I think it is this important to emphasize, all right, I'm writing about a maritime region, but the fact that trade was primarily by sea. And China itself, internally, it used rivers and canals. Mm. That was its main arteries of communication. One of the intriguing cases where you've got a combination of overland and sea is uh, you refer to this porterage scheme across mm. the Kra Isthmus. What was the motivation for that? Was ancient piracy a, a deterrent factor to going through the Malacca Straits? Uh, no, there were, I think there were two issues. One did, had to do with the development of ships. It seems that prior to about the year 300, current era, trade went across from India to uh, the Kra Isthmus and then Porterage. You know, it was shorter. That continued even after people decided to go use the Malacca Straits because the Malacca Straits is fine if you're doing it at the right time of year, but you can only go in one direction at any particular time of the year. So uh, there was still a use for uh, land transit trade across the isthmus. Because of the winds? Yeah, because of the winds, yeah. And it seems that sailing all the way was something which only started to be the norm around about three to 400 current era. So, you know, it's not entirely clear quite why there was this shift. But, of course, it was a shift which then created the importance of all of the ports on the uh, Malacca Strait, and of which Srivijaya, of course, became the premier, at least you know, for a long time, for a thousand years. Now, of course, Singapore is the most, most important port on that strait. Contemporary Srivijaya. Yes, has a long history of... Some port or other has changed. You've had Malacca, you've had Pasai, you've had Aceh, and then you've had the ports of North Java as well. Batavia, Jakarta, Dimak. Things change because the nature of shipping changes or ports silt up. You know, the changes on the North Java coast are, in terms of geography are, are, are very significant. Dimak was once the largest port on the North Java coast, but it's now you know, some way inland. Mm -hmm. And as you point out right at the beginning, of course, if you would dial the clock back much further, a lot of what's now underwater was oh, was land. Well, yeah, that goes back more than seven, eight thousand years. But that sounds a long time ago. But in, you know, relative to how long uh, human beings have been in in Australia, it's not very long at all. I want to also ask you about Vietnam because as a Southeast Asianist and we talked about how Southeast Asia is a relatively recent and constructed geographical term, it comes through I think very nicely and clearly in your book that Vietnam is a kind of organic meeting point for several of these cultural and geographical counterpoints, both of the Chinese influence versus the Indian influence, the continental versus the maritime. And it seems that Vietnam in some senses is a kind of neat microcosm of that and one that also is 
course, very relevant to the contemporary identity of which way Southeast Asia was going. Maybe you could just talk us through a little bit more about that. Some people still see Vietnam as sort of two countries, not because of the division after 1945, but the fact that, you know, the Vietnamization of the South, not only what were the Cham areas, but also, of course, a chunk of Cambodia as well, you know, relatively recent compared with the how long the Vietnamese culture has existed in, in northern Vietnam. This is identifiable, I think, if you just look at architecture because you're dealing with different climatic conditions and and Mm. so on. You know, Vietnam obviously is, as you say, at a meeting point of land and maritime, Chinese and Indian influence. We mustn't overemphasize the Indian influence from the point of view that it's still... Yes, Indian in the sense of Hindu and Indian in the sense of a writing system and so on, but still an Austronesian-speaking people, a Malay-speaking people. You see, that was never lost anywhere in this whole region. I mean, despite the influence of Hinduism, of Buddhism, of traders and so on, yes, there's a huge number of Sanskrit words in, in the language all over the region. The underlying language still remains the Austronesian you know, base. It's a fascinating country as from, point, from that historical point of view. And uh, looking ahead, I mean, one wonders, you know, well, what is the influence of India going to be in the future? Is Chinese influence reaching peak? Possibly, if any, for economic reasons or for um, population reasons and so on. It could well be that uh, in another generation or two, India will be seen as the main focus of commercial activity. As I say, it probably needs trade more than China needs trade. Well, I think at a time, as you said, of disruptive change, you've performed a service, I think, to cast our focus that much wider. And one can look back in order to look forward and reframing one's sense of history and geography in a way that I think gives appropriate reference to the role of trade, the role of the maritime element, and geographically sitting at the center of what is now often cast as the Indo-Pacific is still the Malay archipelago retains, I think, its historical geographical bridging role. And I think you've wound that into an extremely thought-provoking narrative. And it's been a pleasure speaking with you today, Philip Bowring. I thoroughly recommend uh, Empire of the Winds. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And Philip Bowring's book, Empire of the Winds, The Global Role of Asia's Great Archipelago, is published by Taurus. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you may subscribe on Apple Podcasts or any convenient podcasting platform. Please leave a review. They're always appreciated. You can follow me on Twitter at Graham Ewan and you can follow La Trobe Asia at La Trobe Asia. I'm Ewan Graham and thanks for listening.